Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm host David Knowles, and I'm here with co-host Ben Adler. Ben, in this episode, that has been a, a while since we've done one of these, since the uh, COP26 climate change conference, as a matter of fact, you spoke with author David Wallace-Wells and his 2019 book, The Uninhabitable Earth, was really a clarion call and woke a lot of people up about the stakes of the climate crisis and what the world could look forward to with varying degrees of warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I'm really struck by the fact that he really laid out a startling vision of what humanity had to look forward to. And yet we went to COP26, we saw nations come up with new pledges, and now a couple months later, it looks like those pledges are as shaky as ever, especially here in the United States, where the Build Back Better agenda remains in limbo and uh, perhaps holding on by a thread. When you were talking to him, did you reflect on, on where we were in terms of the pledges and promises to combat climate change? Well, what most of what I talked to David about actually was uh, his recent cover story in New York Magazine on the case for climate reparations. And so that has a lot to do with the subject of his book that you uh, mentioned, which is the very grim future of you know shortages of resources, extreme weather, and very challenging living conditions and even mass deaths in developing countries. It is because of that that he's arguing that rich countries that got rich by burning fossil fuels owe climate reparations. So we talked a lot about that. We didn't talk much about what happened at COP or since COP, but I would say that you mentioned, for example, the fact that the U.S. hasn't even passed Build Back Better, which is the centerpiece of the U.S. climate action plan that it brought to COP. So we did talk about the very challenging U.S. political situation with regard to acting on climate, much less, you know, paying out climate reparations. The U.S. at COP really sort of gave a lot of lip service for the first time to the idea of climate reparations, as did a lot of Western nations, um, that it was a big topic. And uh, we, we heard John Kerry speak a lot about it, about how the developed world need to, needed to help the developing world deal with the crisis that was not of its own making. And uh, I wonder, are all those pledges and is all that talk, you know, where does it stand now? Or if, if the U.S. can't pass Build Back Better, it can't even see to its own pledges of cutting emissions, let alone helping the rest of the world. So where do we stand, do you think? Yeah. In terms of what's happened with Build Back Better so far, we're really still the fate 
of U.S. climate action really does still hang in the balance uh, because Joe Manchin has said that the climate provisions are actually the ones he's most supportive of in Build Back Better. And, and so whether those pass remains to be seen. In terms of when we left Glasgow, the sense was that countries had not done enough and not brought strong enough pledges or made strong enough pledges there yet to avert catastrophic climate change, but that collectively they were closing the gap between their pledges and what would be needed to stay below one and a half or two degrees Celsius of warming. And the plan was that, you know, in, in developing nations and, and countries with higher ambitions and activists were saying, instead of waiting five years again, we need to all come together next year at the annual conference of parties, which is usually not a place where the real negotiations happen. It's more just like stock taking on the progress being made. And in Egypt next year, we need to step up higher ambitions. Already, we're seeing backpedaling, right? Some, some countries are, are sort of saying, eh, we're not really planning on doing any more by next year. And the U.S. obviously won't be able to if it hasn't even passed the bill, right? So between now and December, I think we're going to get a strong sense of a much clearer sense of whether the U.S. will be on a path to fulfill its emissions pledges and whether it and other countries are going to come, are going to ramp up their climate ambition this year. If they don't, and we just wait until five years from now, we're going to be further and further off the trajectory that we would need to be on. In terms of David and, and his case for climate reparations, he's focused on promoting the idea of carbon removal, that the countries that put the carbon in the atmosphere are morally obligated to remove it. And because the technology does exist, it's just expensive. And in terms of the political process, he's envisioning this unfolding over a much longer time horizon in which he hopes that the politics you know, will be very different a few decades from now. Whether or not that will be true, of course, we don't know. I mean, are the politics that different than they were 30 years ago? Or we could go in the wrong direction for that matter. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We absolutely could. That's right. I mean polarization keeps getting worse. And you see climate, even though Republicans, Republican voters increasingly accept climate science and support climate action, actually getting anything to happen on climate in Congress, it feels like in some ways it gets closer and in some ways it gets further away, right? Because everything's so polarized now. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, let's get to your interview <laughs> with David. Joining us now is David Wallace-Wells editor-at-large at New York Magazine and the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. David writes frequently about climate change and uh, most recently wrote a cover about climate reparations. And that's what he's joining us to talk about today. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, great stuff. The first thing I wanted to ask you, because I think you were more of a generalist until recently, is how and why you got interested in climate change and began writing about it. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is that I got into it because I was scared. <laughs> I'm somebody who's always been interested in the near future and sort of followed the news from the academy in a loose way as a, as a general, general interest magazine journalist. And starting in sometime in 2016, I just started seeing a lot more scary stuff coming out of the climate sciences than 
I really was seeing reflected in the coverage of climate change in places like the New York Times or, you know, other magazines, including my own New York magazine, um, and certainly more scary than had been, you know, is being treated on the, on the nightly news or whatever. And I started digging deeper as a result. And the more deeply I dug, the sort of scarier it all seemed. And then there was a period in late December of that year, which was, you know, right after the Trump's election. And it's also just a few months after my dad died. So for a couple of reasons, I was in a, a place of, you know, temperamental despair to begin with. There was a, a week of Arctic temperatures that were like 40 degrees warmer than it was supposed to be up there. And that's actually now since been repeated almost every year since, but at the time it felt like a crazy anomaly. And one that made me worry that we might be seeing a, a, a quite rapidly accelerating um, global warming story. It seems like that's not the case. You know, the, the story is sort of the, the one that we went into that fall thinking was unfolding, not one that was much, much worse. But nevertheless, the sort of fuller, deeper picture that I got, the more that I spoke to climate scientists, the more that I read about new research into the various impacts of warming from economics to warfare and, and all the rest of it, the bigger and scarier the story seemed to me. And the less, honestly, to be totally honest, it felt um, that story was being told by most mainstream journalists. So I wrote a story, a big story in the summer of 2017, the following summer, that was essentially a, a look at worst case scenarios for warming and was really animated by the question of, you know, how bad could, could this really get? And it was, you know, a harrowing experience. It was also um, a huge hit. I think it turned out that there were a lot of people out there who had some of the same intuitions and inclinations that I had had in the previous year, thinking, we're seeing indications that this could be really bad, but it's not actually being told to us in those terms. And when they saw a story coming down the pike that, that did that and looked really clearly at worst case scenarios, acknowledging that they were worst case, not likely futures, there was a, a huge response to it. And I thought that was sort of encouraging in a number of ways, but it also meant, I think that it meant for me that I, I felt some obligation to keep focus on the story. Um, in addition to the fact that in doing that research, I really come to believe that this was sort of the most important and indeed sort of all encompassing story of our time. And that writing about anything else would mean at least reckoning with um, the climate change story. And certainly writing about certain things would, would mean being dominated by the, by the narrative of climate change. So I went from there and, and wrote this book, which came out a couple of years later in 2019. And in that book, I, I was less focused on worst case scenarios, more focused on the sort of likely range of warming, but also tried to get beyond the simple matter of science into the, all the ways that the changes that we know to expect, we can also expect to change our psychological lives, our emotional lives, our political lives, our cultural lives, which it felt to me was another area that climate journalism had sort of neglected, you know, what are the geopolitics of climate change? What is the narrative art of climate change? What is the, um, what are the, the implications for political economy of these dynamics? And, you know, tried to sketch out what I thought of as a, a sort of humanities of, of climate change. We're now in a very different place. Many more people are writing about climate, much more discursively, much more ambitiously, and many more outlets are doing it in a much more direct and sort of front and center way than when I started, but it still feels to me, you know, um, by any objective measure, we're sort of undercovering the story. And, you know, I'm glad to be talking about it here along with, along with you to, you know, just keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> we need to keep talking. Well, so let's, yeah. So let's talk about your cover, which is on an issue that I think is especially undercovered in the climate realm. And that's global inequality in terms of emissions and climate justice in a global sense. 
and what developed nations owe developing nations. So you did this cover story for New York, uh, climate reparations, the case for carbon removal is the, is the subhead. Can you just yeah, I think actually the, the line that they put on the cover is a, is a more pointed framing, which is, I think it was the guilty and the damned was the, um, the line that was actually on the cover. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so wait, so, so who's the guilty and who's the damned, right? We're the guilty and- They're the damned, the yeah. Countries are the damned, yeah. So that's, that's strong language. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but let's just first talk about the substance of, of your case. You know, why did you write this article about climate reparations? And in particular, why did you, because when I've written about climate justice globally in the UN climate negotiation process, for instance, the issue is, you know, how much money will developed countries give to developing countries for adaptation? How much will they give to subsidize a clean energy path of development so that poorer countries can commit to limiting emissions? And then there's this big question of loss and damage that, that's growing, this question of what do countries that got rich by burning fossil fuels owe to countries that are already experiencing and will inevitably experience, no matter how much they try to adapt, losses because of climate change? You take a totally different tack and talk about carbon removal. So I was just curious why you decided to focus on climate reparations and then specifically on carbon removal as the approach. Well, there's sort of two ways to answer that question. The first is like biographical, like why did, how did I come to this subject? Um, And the other is moral. And I actually think it's useful to talk about them separately because the second answer is more important, but the honest answer is that I started thinking about this subject and, and wondering about it almost from a purely technical point of view, which is I started, I saw a bunch of reporting about counting of historical emissions. That is to say, a number of projects were being undertaken in which people were just basically counting how much carbon each country had put into the atmosphere in the history of industrialization. And as a part of that, um, you know, everybody would always make a point of saying, you know, carbon is a, a cumulative thing. Once it's up there, it basically doesn't come out unless you take it out. And that means that the carbon that was put up there, even if it was put up there in the 18th century in England, it's still there and it's still warming the planet. It's still, that carbon is still warming the planet as powerfully as any carbon that we put up right now and any carbon that we put up in the next 20 years. Now there's some, technically, you know, carbon does come in and out of the atmosphere, but basically the stock that's up there stays the same. So functionally what we put up there stays up there unless we take it out. And that was really powerful to me as a conceptual idea because we always talk about this problem looking forward and talking about the path of development and trajectories of emissions. And as a result, countries like the US and really all of the European nations look pretty good because we're like bending our curves downward and you can really draw pretty obvious lines that we're going to get our act together on this over the next 50 years. Maybe we can do it over the next 20 years. And that's an important question, but you know, we're, we're heading in the right direction. And the, the sort of burden is always put on the countries of the middle income countries of the world and the developing nations of the world, China, India, Sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, who, for whom the, the trajectory is much more open. They could be building coal plants. They could be building solar panels, you know, and, and anywhere in between. And this historical perspective, I think really frames the matter of responsibility quite clearly, which is to say, you know, all of Sub-Saharan Africa, where there are a billion, more than a billion people living today, is responsible for about 1% of all historical emissions. And the US, one country whose total population is 
about a third of all of Sub-Saharan Africa is responsible for 20% of all historical emissions. So the U.S. is, you know, the big sinner here to the extent that we have a climate crisis today. It is one fifth of that problem is the creation of the United States. And 80% of that problem is the creation of the nations of the G20. So it is wealth and wealthy countries that have brought us to the point we are today when we have to be asking countries in the developing world and the global South to move more quickly than we ever did when we were in their stages of development. Now, that was a harder ask five or 10 years ago than it is today, because actually it was understood at the time to be costly developed in green ways. Now we see that actually the opposite is probably true, that these countries will benefit by developing in more green ways. And that's really encouraging and exciting. But nevertheless, like the whole world is dealing with a problem and the global South by accident of geography, essentially is dealing with it much more intensely than the global North because of what has happened in countries like the US, the UK, the the rest of the EU, um, to some degree, China. And that sort of like framed the question of responsibility in an abstract way. But then I just put it together with this new work on carbon removal, where they were actually like putting a price on what it costs to take carbon out of the air. And I thought, oh, that's a very simple math problem. We know how much each of these countries, how much damage each of these countries have done. We don't have to calculate their responsibility in terms of what amount of increased intensity of a typhoon like that results in, we can actually calculate it in the literal meaning of the word reparations, what it would take to undo that damage, to repair that damage. And that would mean just taking the total gigatonnage of damage that each of these countries has done and multiply it by what we understand to be basically like an at scale cost of removing that carbon from the atmosphere through various approaches of, of carbon removal. Now, you know, that's getting into a whole big weedsy debate about whether carbon removal can really scale to that level, whether those costs are really reliable, what it would mean for, you know, global supply chains down, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, I mean, I did, you know, the the, today's working carbon removal plants are charged about 500 to $600, but I used a hundred dollars a ton because most people in the field believe that with even minor public subsidy, it'll get down to that point over the next decade or two. Scale. Yeah. But, but what? But so what? So at, at what is the USO by that calculation? Fifty trillion dollars, and you know the the total cost of undoing the entire da- all of the damage of all of the industrial, da- you know, all of the carbon that we've ever yeah. produced is two hundred fifty trillion. Right. Um, now that sounds huge, right? But keep in mind two things. The first is the globe has probably spent about twenty trillion dollars in terms of in COVID relief over the last mm-hmm. um, two years. In fact, the US has probably spent about ten trillion. And this is not a project that would have to be completed in one year or five year or 10 years or even 30 years or 50 years or 75 years. We could do this over the course of 100 or 150 years. It would be a lot easier if we were also rapidly decarbonizing, but we don't have to be spending that money in one huge chunk. We don't have to be taking that much carbon out of the atmosphere at once. In fact, what this technology would theoretically allow us to do, and I I don't want to overstate its promise, there are huge complications, but in theory, what it would allow us to do is to really dramatically extend our timeline of climate action, where we can, you know, we do need to cut our emissions in half by 2030. We do need to get to net zero around mid-century. Those are very important goals. But if we do those things and we scale up a negative emissions program at some meaningful scale, we can just sort of keep that running for a century or a century and a half and get ourselves not just you know, back to the carbon levels that we were at 
when I was born in 1982, but possibly the carbon levels of 1882, and even possibly the carbon levels of 1582. And in theory, bring back down the global temperature from where I think we're likely gonna end up something around two degrees Celsius of warming, possibly all the way back down to zero degrees Celsius of warming. Yeah, but it, so back of the envelope, 50 trillion over a hundred years is 500 billion a year, right? So it's 500 billion a year, yeah. which yeah. is which is 500 billion is obviously roughly the amount that President Biden and the vast majority of Democrats in Congress want to spend over the next 10 years on combating climate change. And it remains to be seen if they'll pass, be able to get the votes to pass that. And so you, if you were talking about spending that much on carbon removal every year, obviously political complications come into play. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how do you what do you think? How do you see this actually getting through the U.S. political process? Well, the honest answer is that I don't in any short term way. Yeah. Um, and my purpose in writing this piece was not to make a practical proposal that would be picked up and passed tomorrow. And, you know, although that right. would be wonderful, it was to frame the, the question of, of um, responsibility in cold dollars and cents terms to make people like you and me and probably most of our listeners really understand the degree to which we have we stand as beneficiaries of carbon pollution. And that's why one of the reasons why the U.S. is so rich. It's one of the reasons why all of these countries are so rich. Yeah. Um, and as a result, even if we ourselves and our individual lives are doing something to reduce our carbon footprints or mobilize for climate action, we still owe quite a bit more in terms of real a real you know reckoning with our true responsibility than that is than we could possibly achieve in those ways. And I think that that is the to me the, the most important thing about this argument is just to say, you know, it's not about giving $100 billion a year to the developing world, which is what the, the standard that was set in the Paris Agreement and the rich countries of the world have failed to deliver to this point. They say they're now going to do it. We'll see. But it goes well, 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 well beyond that. But taking your practical question a little more seriously, I also think that's one of the great opportunities and sort of optimistic features of this, what I referred to a minute ago, is this sort of timeline extension, which is that if you're thinking of this project of managing the world's stock of atmospheric carbon as a project of 10 or 20 or 30 years, yes, you're probably going to be working through that math in a political landscape that looks like the one that we have today. If you're thinking of it as one as a project that is un going to unfold over 50 or 75 or 150 years, that really opens your political imagination a lot more as well. And that's not to say that I think 50 years from now, we're going to have, you know, a Star Trek galactic body that where everybody is thinking rationally and there's no competitiveness. And, you know, I don't I'm not that kind of an optimist, but I also don't think like it means dealing with Joe Manchin. You know, it's um, they're, they're just they're going to be different roadblocks, but they're also going to be different opportunities. And in general, I do think if you look at the last 20 years, it's sort of clear that at the level of public opinion, at least concern about climate and the crises of um, extreme weather that come about as a result of, of warming has really grown. I think there's a, a sort of worry on the opposite side, which is that that anxiety turns people against one another. They want to secure their own well-being and don't worry about people living elsewhere in the world. So there's a danger of a rising tide of climate anxiety, particularly if what you're hoping to do is engineer a kind of global uh, carbon removal program. But I think um, my bet would be that the 
more progressive vision sort of not perfectly, not in a utopian way, but wins out in the end. And in general, we get a global a global perspective on climate change that is more ambitious and worried than the one that we have today. Let's talk for a second about the practicalities of carbon removal and, and where the technology is, because I've only done a little bit of reporting on this. I did a story on the plant that opened in Iceland, which I yeah. So my understanding is the technology to suck carbon out of the air is fully established. It's just a little bit expensive. But the other aspect of it is what, what do you do with the carbon once you've removed it? Um, you have to store it somewhere, somewhere that is so tightly sealed that it never leaks out. Because if it leaks out, then you've defeated the whole point. And I mean, obviously, in theory, you can put it somewhere underground, although you need to dig out a cave in some cases or whatever you would do. Is my understanding is that no one has fully answered the question yet of exactly if you were talking about the amounts of carbon removal that you're talking about, where it would all go and how it would all be secured. What's your uh, understanding of that? The people I know who are admittedly there, you know, the people who know this best are also relatively more bullish on it than the people who know it less well. But the people who I know who know the, the landscape best are very, very confident that the world's geosphere has many, 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 many times more capacity to store carbon than we would need it for. And one way of thinking of that is like, the carbon we put into the atmosphere all came out of the ground to begin with. So right. at the very least, like we just put it back there, we've got the capacity for <laughs> like that. Like an empty and oil well, basically. Well, no, that's that, that's actually, um, that's one of the great, you know, what that's one of the main areas of focus is like, we will use the extractive fossil fuel industries that exist today, sort of repurpose them, run the run times hour backward, collect that smoke that came from that burned coal, condense it into something like coal and bury it back down where basically where it came the from. The mine, yeah. Yeah, now that's not the only way to do it. There are a lot of other carbon storage projects out there and, and there's some of these direct air capture projects that are designed actually to produce like carbon neutral jet fuel and other, you know, there are other ways of sort of repurposing what you capture. Right now we actually do take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in our soda. Um, that's how we have carbonated soda. And that's not useful in the long term because every time you open the soda, like the carbonation dissipates again. But um, you know, we have we are doing this at some very small scale, and we just need to sort of figure out a way to do it at a, at a much, 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 much larger scale. And just to be really clear, we talked about the scale in terms of dollars. You know, the scale of doing this, even to complement a rapid decarbonization timeline of the kind that like the IPCC is calling for to get us to 1.5 degrees. Um, in addition to that rapid decarbonization, we would need to be building and opening one of these plants every single day between now and 2050. And we have one of them operating in the world today. So we're we're way behind schedule. And it's not just a matter of dollars and cents. It's also a huge engineering and infrastructural program. But that being said, I think that the main challenge is engineering infrastructure and money, not is there a con conceptually, is there a place we can put this stuff safely? It seems to me pretty clear that we can. And even beyond that, there are a lot of tech approaches that are in a slightly less mature phase um, that may, I call them tech approaches, they're, they're sort of in between, but that, you know, that may end up um, proving really useful and much cheaper. So there are people who are trying to regrow kelp seaweed forests, you know, there are people attempting to just alkalize the ocean so that the ocean can absorb more carbon or, or sprinkle, you know, sprinkle particular minerals over large 
open areas of land in ways that the land can absorb more. And there are there is promising tech in carbon removal there too. But in all of these cases, you know, when you read these stories in the newspaper, you tend to think, oh, maybe they figured out climate change. It's like, no, the scale of doing this is so unbelievably huge that it's not a matter of having the tech similar to the problem of, of rolling out renewables. It's not a matter of having the technology of renewables. It's a matter of actually building out enough of it to supply all of the world's energy needs when we expect because of the developing South growth over the next few decades, we're going to need a lot more energy to begin with. And that's something I, you know, just want to like focus on for a minute because we, we got to the, the tech part, the tech part of the question pretty quickly, carbon removal. The moral case here is really, you know, it's about global inequality that was created by the burning of fossil fuels. Much of our economic development in the West is because we mastered fossil fuel power early. It's not all of it, but although there are some accounts that say it is all of it, I don't think it is, but it is a major factor in the economic growth, which we've experienced through the Industrial Revolution, since the Industrial Revolution. I think it's important for everybody to keep in mind in all of human history before the Industrial Revolution, which is to say in all of human history before the discovery of fossil fuels, there was no economic growth. So the entire story of economic growth is, is coincident with our use of fossil fuels. The inequalities that we see in the world where the Western countries are so much richer is largely powered by that fossil fuel use, which is to say largely powered by activity that produced huge amounts of pollution and have brought us to the crisis point where we are today. And already that impact, the impact of that pollution is meaningfully verifiably degrading the quality of life in the developing world. So there've been a number of studies showing that you know, in many of these countries, 25% of potential GDP has already been lost as a result of, of climate impacts. If you sketch that forward to the end of the century, it may be the case that many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa lose almost all of their capacity for economic growth, where you're, they lose 80, 90% of their- illustrate that for, for our listeners with some concrete examples? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about things like drought causes, destroys the agricultural yields uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, let's say, right? But so can you just give us some examples of how it, this dramatic economic harm to economic growth is occurring as a result of climate change? Yeah, well, in, in the very most basic way, you know, this sounds really like a form of geographic determinism, but economists believe that there is a sort of an optimal temperature level for, um, for work. It's like 13 degrees Celsius, which is basically what the um, historical temperature of Germany and the United States both are. 50 something um, Fahrenheit. Yeah, as an annual, like annual average. Annual average. Um, and when you get above that, people's cognitive performance declines as a result, economic productivity declines. When you get really high above that, it means that a lot of, say, you know, outdoor manual labor um, becomes much less productive and indeed even dangerous to people doing it. And that's not yet where we are in wide part, you know, widespread parts of Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. But as soon as the middle of the century, it may be the case that during summer, you know, outdoor work of any kind will be quite dangerous in those parts of the world, which, you know, doesn't just mean that things have to move indoors. It means that whole sectors of the economy will have to really be shut down or totally remodeled um, in order to continue at all. So then you have the kinds of impacts oh, that sorry, you're talking about. Can you just illustrate, for example, besides agriculture, construction and what else? can't be done outdoors and, and that damages. Yeah, agriculture, construction, those are two, those are two big yeah. ones. But, you know, if you think about the outdoor commerce that takes place um, in much of the, um, right. along the equatorial band of the planet, like those people won't be able to be on the street selling their wares. They'll have to be in an air-conditioned shopping mall. And that just is a very different kind of a proposition. You know, the um, then we get to extreme weather and we talk about, you know, droughts, heat waves, 
flooding, um, you know, not to mention the sort of more dramatic hurricanes, typhoons, wildfire kind of things that are less common, but still quite catastrophic. There are water shortages, you know, all of these things add up. And one of the ways that they add up is by pressuring social and political systems that are already quite fragile. And so there is a relationship between temperature and conflict. We see it already in the, in the historical data. It's not super duper dramatic. It's not like you can point to recent wars and say, if it weren't for this particular heat wave, um, everything would have been fine in this country or that country. Um, but overall, the people who study this material say that for every half degree of warming, you get about a 10 or 20% increase in the likelihood of conflict, which means if we're dealing with, say, three degrees of warming, we could be dealing with 50 or 70% more, more war. That's quite dramatic at a global level. And it also affects conflict down to the individual level. So you see rates of murder and, and rape and robbery go up. And you know, on top of all of that, there is the effect of, of air pollution, which in a world that is continuing to produce fossil fuels is really, the toll is really, really, really huge. And I wrote a, a long piece recently for the London Review of Books on this, which I, you know, is, is I think air pollution is so important and people really, really don't um, appreciate it and don't talk right, about it enough. Yeah. It's a high-end estimate, but the current Vanguard estimates are that air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels every year kills 8.7 million people globally. And even lower end estimates are in the millions. So we're talking about an incredible annual death toll just from the burning of fossil fuels. And then below that direct, like these people are dying from it effect, it affects um, cognitive performance, it affects economic performance, right. it affects rates of respiratory illness and cancer and developmental issues. It's like every aspect of human health and flourishing you can imagine is damaged by this force, which will, you know, which is continuing, especially in, in parts of the global South. Yeah, I've been to Beijing and it's a pretty surreal thing when the forecast says um, today is sunny and you look outside and it's completely overcast. And eventually I realized that's pollution. Yeah. That's clouds, that's smog. And um, you can taste it in the air. And the air pollution is, in fact, much worse in many cities in China and in India than it is in Beijing. And it's, it's a lot easier to, to see how this actually kills people if you've ever been in a place that is that badly polluted and smelled it, you know. Or yeah, you know, China's taken some, I don't know when you were in Beijing, but China's taken some, yeah, so that was actually the worst year for China in terms of pollution. And they've taken some measures since then, mostly just by like moving their coal production away from their cities, not necessarily yeah. by cleaning up their air, but just getting it away from their people. Um, but in India, the average resident of Delhi's life expectancy is nine years shorter than it would be without um, air pollution. Every single person who lives in Delhi would live nine years longer if it were not for air pollution. And across the country as a whole, 350,000 stillbirths and miscarriages every year, 350,000 from the effects of air pollution. I mean, that is astounding. Although just to put it in context, um, a lot of the same research suggests that 350,000 Americans die every year from air pollution, which is basically the same number as died last year from um, from COVID. So, you know, we have a sense of these risks that we're facing, you know, generally speaking, but maybe even within the climate landscape, where we we worry a lot about the things that aren't yet here, sort of treat the the damages that we're already experiencing as acceptable. But you know, air pollution is a really you know, complicates that um, mental reflex because the the impacts that we're dealing with today from the burning of fossil fuels are 
horrifying and really I think if we were awake to them um, should motivate and mobilize us politically, maybe even more than worry about sea level rise and, and drought and the rest. So, I mean, you've just laid out the moral case for climate reparations and the moral case obviously has a, a lot of weight, but you know- To people like you and me at least. Right. <laughs> That's where I was going with it. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned in your piece Ta-Nehisi Coates's um, case for reparations for African-Americans because their labor was stolen for hundreds of years and the country got rich. The white people in the country got rich, stealing labor of African-Americans and, and then continuing to, to expropriate their labor and, and, and property in uh, various ways, at least through the Jim Crow era. Right. So there's this really strong, obvious, straightforward. You can calculate it. What's the cost of stolen labor? You know, and just like cut a check. But it'd be a lot of money. And even though, you know, journalists and, and, and other people like that thought, oh, his, his case, in, you know, for reparations, the Atlantic is so convincing. And a lot of us were for reparations even before it. It's going nowhere politically. And it polls terribly, I would add, um, by the way, and not just among white people. It polls terribly among everyone but African-Americans. And not even that well among African-Americans. It's not, yeah. not I, they, yeah. I didn't know that, but I'm not that surprised. Yeah. Reparations, and, and, and by the way, no one's talking about reparations for Native Americans who had all of their land stolen, who had their labor stolen, whatever. I mean, the case is just as strong there. And no one's even talking about it because there just aren't, Native Americans aren't even a large enough political force anymore because they've been uh, massacred. In light of that, why do you call it reparations? Do you think that that maybe is not the most politically appealing way of framing a case that, for instance, if you look at loss and damage, that framing, loss and damage is a tough sell politically in the United States, right? But if you call it loss and damage, you make it sound like, which it is, a simple property rights matter, right? You dump pollution on your neighbor's property, you owe her money, and then you, like, if you could take you to court, you have to pay her, but maybe you can settle out of court. You know, that's what with loss and damage, that's how it's being framed. And it's still tough to sell politically. And you could call it reparations because it is that, too. But you don't. <laughs> right. You call it loss and damage. So why with carbon removal and your approach to reparations, do you call it reparations? Do you think do, do you think that that's not uh, going to inhibit its um, appeal to broader section of the American public? Well, I think it probably would. It probably does. I mean, I, I really think that like this whole conversation is happening in a tiny corner of the political landscape. And right. my main impulse was to be really clear in the moral framing. And I think there the reparations language is really useful and loss and damage is more technical. It is it presents more as it, it presents the, the debt more as philanthropy as opposed to guilt obligation. And I think that reparations is a more pointed way of articulating that debt, which I do think is it is a reflection of our guilt in a very literal way that many of these countries are dealing with so many dramatic impacts from climate already and will continue to do so. But I also think counter to the way that you described it, I actually think that loss and damage and Tanahasi's calculation is much less direct than the one that I'm proposing. And actually neither truly amounts to a calculation of reparations. Like if we are talking about like how, how exactly do you calculate the value of that law of that stolen labor? How exactly do you calculate, you know, the how much of the black wealth gap is the direct result of redlining? Those are 
technical academic disputes, which have produced a wide variety of answers, many of which are politically motivated. And I do think if you really endeavored to, you could try, you can find a kind of consensus range to use. But here I'm literally saying this is the price of cleaning up the mess we made. If we want to get past the climate crisis and return the earth to a state before the damage of man-made warming, this is the cost. Now, I'm not hopeful that we're going to get all the way to spending that money. And I'm not hopeful that we're going to get us get the planet all the way back to 280 parts per million. But I do think when we hear leaders talking about debating $100 billion a year from all of these countries of the G20 to the developing nations of the world, debating whether that amount is possible and justifying loans that, are, that require repayment as part of that $100 billion amount and laugh and scoff at representatives from the poorer countries of the world who are calling for $750 billion, a trillion, $1.3 trillion a year. I think it's useful to keep in mind that in a very direct way, what we owe as the US to clean up our part of the mess is 50 trillion. Like it's just, it's a useful standard that we will fall, we will fail to meet, but how far we are failing to meet it is I think instructive. And for anyone with a sort of moral perspective on all of this, it should be motivating to make us want to do more. Now, like I don't, I, I share, I think most of your skepticism, I don't think the American um, body politic is going to accept any spending like that scale in our lifetimes. But I think for those of us who are pushing for more climate action, it's useful just to know we're not just talking about can we reduce our emissions by 9% per year or 7% per year or 5% per year. It's like, no, no, no. Even forgetting what we're doing going forward, we have built up this huge stockpile of pollution, which is still in the atmosphere. Half of it has been put there in the last 25 years. So this is not the result of ancient bad behavior. And that pollution is still the main cause of climate change we see today. Now, where we end up in the future is going to be determined more by what happens from here. But we are at 1.2, 1.3 degrees of warming today because of what has happened in the past, not what is happening going forward. We are just on the brink of this 1.5 degree threshold and maybe the, you know, the two degree threshold. We are there not because of what's going to happen in the next 20 years, but because of what's happened in the last 20 years. And we have to like look, our, look, look in the mirror and understand that that requires some kind of response from us rather than just telling China to stop building coal plants. That, mm -hmm. that just isn't, you know, that is not a morally honest reckoning with the role that America has played in creating this crisis essentially from scratch. 25 years ago, we knew that the climate crisis was going to happen if we continued burning fossil fuels. That was the science was really clear, but we were not at that crisis point yet. In fact, we were quite far from it. And we are where we are now in the existential panic that we're in now because of what has happened in that period of time, which is not that long. I mean, it's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's, you know, it's since the UN established its IPC climate change body. So a lot of the same people who are in power today we're in power then, you know, last year or this past summer, I, um, I testified in, in Senate. I was said that to like the, the um, Senate budget committee. It's like you people, like you people I'm talking to, many of you were powerful people 20 years ago. Many of you, you were senators 20 years ago. 
it is not like you were not, you are not responsible here. Like the people who are responsible are still alive and many of them are still in power. And if we pretend that this is a story ex exclusively of the future and exclusively of, you know, about the villainy of, of China and India, I think we're really, really um, living in delusion and also making ourselves a kind of a laughingstock to the rest of the world who will say, hang on, you, you want us to do what when you've done what? I mean, right. you know, just that one very, very like limited, like there's been a lot of talk coming out of COP26 in Glasgow about India's net zero promise. That was one of the, the kind of few pieces of real news. Um, they said 2070, then they kind of pushed it back to 2080. There was talk about phasing out coal, but they were saying, oh, India's not doing enough phasing out coal. The U.S. is today burning much more coal than India is burning. Today, in 2021, 2022, whatever year it is, um, like, and none of the rhetoric from American leaders or from the American press has really acknowledged that reality. There are things we are doing that make us seem to be performing better than some of these other countries, but that's because we're so much richer, we're so much farther along our development paths. And the things that we're asking of the poorer countries of the world right now, if we don't recognize our own responsibility for putting them in that position, it's just, it's just a joke. And when I see, you know, I'm, I have no, no love for Xi Jinping, but like when I see John Kerry, like lecturing Xi Jinping, I just think it's, it's comical, you know, on a per capita basis, even today, the U S is a considerably worse climate villain than China is. They've got four times as many people as we do. The fact that they have twice as many, um, twice as much carbon emissions, that doesn't make up for it. Um, and when you look historically, almost no matter what scenario you project over the next century, even one in which China goes crazy building coal plants, they're not going to approach our ultimate historical responsibility. So wherever we end up, however we like land this plane, the U.S. is going to be the main driver of the crisis. And we really need to understand that and understand our responsibility and thinking about what we ask the rest of the world to do and what we try to get our own country um, to get behind. I think it's... Um, not doing that is really operating blind. This is great, David. Thank you so much for joining us. This was um, this was very interesting. We'll have to have you back sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. So um, thanks again for having me on this time, and um, maybe we'll talk again soon. Thank you.